Well, good afternoon. Thank you for coming um, along today. We're going to talk, um, or I'm going to talk today, and you're going to uh, hopefully follow, um, a story about how we mobilise savings for investment. It's an issue we've come across uh, before in these lectures, and I want to um, spend some time today thinking about what it is uh, we're doing when we're saving, why we save for a particular future, how the economy channels those savings back into um, activity through firms, whether we're doing it particularly well, what kind of policies have been implemented to increase savings or increase or reduce the risk of the overall financial structure of the economy. And at the end, we'll have a look at some numbers just to understand how well we're doing um, as an economy in, in these matters. And what we'll find is that it's um, relatively disappointing. Um, and I think I want to think about answers to improve performance. We may not get through all of that today, but let's see where we get to by the time um, it's the end of lunch. So, um, always tempting to start with um, some literature. Uh, literature contains many ideas uh, based on economics, but also many ideas from which economists can learn. And um, there are many examples in literature of, of the examining the idea of debt and borrowing and saving. But I thought the Shipman's Tale from the Canterbury Tales is, is itself instructive in many senses. Um, I'll, lead you, I'll leave you to read the whole of the thing. I shan't uh, read it out. But here we have a, a, a man, a trader, who's also a householder, who's at regular intervals trying to understand whether he has become wealthier or not as the years go on. Um, as we know, those of us who've read The Shipman's Tale will know that things didn't go quite so well for him when he decided to lend money. But uh, given this is before the watershed, I can't go into details of what happened uh, to him and his family. I'll leave you to do that in your own time. It's certainly worth reading uh, The Shipman's Tale. Uh, but of course... The augmentation of wealth, the sense in which whether we have more financial assets rather than less financial assets, may not be the only metric by which we should judge the outcomes in an economy. Um, and what I want to consider is another set of outcomes um, that, that theory talks about a lot, and that's some notion of being able to have um, a constant or constantly growing level of consumption for individuals. And when we start to think about saving in that context, saving is nothing more than something that provides us with insurance um, over days uh, in which we don't earn as much as we do now. And once we have that in our mind, uh, saving takes a different um, concept in our head than simply augmenting our wealth. Um, it, in a sense, over our lifetime, we should be planning so that whatever wealth we hold should, in principle, go to zero right at the end of our lives if we could manage things quite well enough. And that's if we don't allow for uh, wanting to give some to our wonderfully needy children uh, at the end of life. We can deal with that problem another time if we wanted to. But really, the, the saving problem in that context is simply a way of offering us a buffer against those unanticipated shocks that may come along. And the next part of that is if we're saving, who are we giving it to and how are we giving it to those peoples? Well, there's a particular institution or set of institutions we may give our savings to. We'll come on to those wonderful individuals in a moment. But what we would want those institutions to do is to pass those savings to another set of institutions who would uh, uh, generate some returns from those savings, not only to allow those other set of institutions to be profitable, but to give us a return once it's gone through that first institution so that when our income is lower, we can still maintain the standard of living or level of consumption that we desire. And that's a, a story about the economy that we teach um, undergraduates that most of us have in the back of our head about how an economy should work. Unfortunately, when we confront the real economy, it doesn't quite seem to work like that. And we'll look at some examples of that as we go on through this lecture. Um, so the idea is essentially the first institution I described is a household, the second institution is a firm, and we're thinking that at any moment in time, the aggregate, the set of households, will be generating a certain amount of savings. They will be intermediated through um, an organisation we shall come to in a minute, and intermediated, intermediated to firms who will borrow. And from their borrowings, they will employ individuals. They will also invest in capital, and they'll return profits to their owners and eventually pay back the debt with interest to those people who've saved. That's a simple story of capitalism. Um, 
And what we'll see later on is that for households are actually indebted, they hold debts themselves, but when we stack up their debts against their wealth or their assets that they hold, households in aggregate in the UK and most advanced economies have net worth. So the, com the commentary, the, the, the national dialogue on households is that they're increasingly indebted. Well, we'll see that's true, but actually against those debts are many times more a set of assets that they hold. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. Um, if this story is right, we should be expecting firms to borrow and borrowing to invest in a richer future. And we'll see in a minute, though, that firms are actually cash rich. They're not investing at the moment. But we're going to ask ourselves, how is it we're matching the stock of savings to investment if um, firms are not borrowing? Well, there may be some other sets of individuals who are borrowing as well in our economic system. And we'll come to that shortly. So I want to examine the simple theory of savings with or without constraints, so at least we all hopefully understand where that comes from. I want to point to what's been a long-run trend in the UK, and that's a decline in the rate of growth of investment. So whatever firms are doing, they're certainly investing relatively less in terms of growth rates of investment than they did 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. There may be lots of reasons for that. Lots of them may be tied up with the development of intangible rather than tangible capital. Uh, it could be issues such as mismeasurement uh, to do with the price deflator that we use to understand capital goods. There could be changes in the pattern of depreciation. But the trend is quite strong and quite clear. Um, we'll look at that as well. And then we'll think about how, following the financial crisis, we've introduced a new set of instruments to regulate risk of lending, or the risk of lending through these institutions who I haven't named yet, and that might control both the quantity and quality of lending. And what we might think after a moment's um, introspection is that it might be a good thing to control the quantity of lending, but as soon as we start to control the quantity of lending, it's going to hit a particular set of households more than it will another set of households. It's not going to hit the very wealthy household. It's not going to hit those who have large amounts of collateral to lay down. It will hit the marginal households, those who are just about managing, which I believe is an expression that's doing the rounds this year. Those with maybe a couple of incomes and just able to meet their mortgages may find that the policies that have been introduced are rationing them out of the market. Now, in total, that might be a good thing because it might reduce overall risk. But for that particular household that may have planned on a level of borrowing, it may be very problematic indeed. And we'll think about what that means. So I think there are severe problems in the way that we're intermediating or mobilising savings for investment in the UK. I'm going to start um, um, a very simple way because I like to think as simply as I can about things. I'm going to recall this kind of diagram. It's one that I've used before in my lectures. It's just simple notion of savings and investment in a closed economy. So in this setup, we're not borrowing from abroad. Everything that's saved in the economy is invested at some market clearing rate I, which is what Vixel called 100 years ago the natural rate of interest, one which clears the market for savings and investment and tends to lead to full employment in the economy. And in this setup, we can see that as I increases, the S is a savings schedule, people's planned level of savings given a rate of interest. And what it's saying when it's drawn that way is that when interest rates are higher, we have a greater incentive to save or defer consumption than we will when interest rates are lower. Equally, um, the investment line we can see is, is downward sloping, and what that says is that at lower interest rates, we're likely to see planned higher levels of investment. And that's simply because if we stack up all the investment projects from the best to the worst, as interest rates go down, the next best investment can wash its face is now profitable. It wasn't at a higher interest rate, but it is now at that lower interest rate. So the demand for investment we expect to be downward sloping. If the market cleared, we'd have I and savings will be fully employed. Another alternative is that we can source savings from abroad. So we don't only rely on savings from this country, we can access that pool of savings from households around the world. And what a wonderful thing that is. That then might mean that um, given a domestic saving schedule, which would lead to savings on the left-hand dotted line, we can also 
the eyes can access overseas savings, which would be the difference between those two dotted lines and would be the current account deficit, the extent to which savings are mobilised from abroad, because the world real interest rate is below the interest rate for which savings would clear in our domestic market. So in that setup, we'd have higher investment than we would in a simple closed economy, with a large part and more of the gap made up from the pool of savings internationally. But the basic story is uh, very much the same. And in this setup, there's no particular need to worry about a current account deficit. These are just private sector firms deciding to borrow more from abroad and providing they've formulated their plans in an appropriate manner and they make a sufficient return from their investments domestically that will allow them to repay the claims from abroad on the UK and the current account deficit in time will be reversed as we pay back those debts in the future. So by itself there's nothing particularly to worry about from a current account deficit in this world. It simply allows us to access savings from abroad that we wouldn't otherwise be able to access that should allow a higher level of activity in the economy. Now, let's go back to the story of our household at the uh, household level. And this is just a depiction of the same idea that I, I gave to you a few moments ago. The thick dotted uh, black line is a simple representation of the income over our lives. The, the lower first bit is when we're young, uh, students perhaps. Uh, the middle bit is, is middle age when uh, we're running through the rat race and our incomes are high as we're climbing the corporate ladder or not as the case may be, uh, or doing what we do with our lives and earning lots of money. And then later on, uh, I can see none of us have got there yet. We, we hit retirement and uh, we're lower levels of income. And if we added that all up, that would be our permanent income or the total amount of income we're going to earn in our lives. And what we'd want to do, if at all possible, is try and have the same level of consumption throughout our lives, because we may not want to have large variance in consumption. We may not want to have very low levels of consumption when we're poor, and, uh, when we're young, and very low levels of consumption when we're old. If we possibly could, we might want to have the same level of consumption throughout our life. And that's maybe the way, right way to think about household planning. And in that world, you'd be consuming around that dotted line there. And that's the idea of households would be smoothing consumption over their lifetime. Um, you could also think of this as a, as a world with some uh, constraints. We could say if we see in an economy at large a, a large pool of savings, this could be an economy in which currently income is high temporarily relative to consumption. So it could be an economy we could think of as being characterised by people in middle age or people with high incomes at the moment relative to their planned consumption path. So anywhere in the world that we see pools of savings could very well be thought of as worlds in which people are deciding to treat that extra income that they're generating as something they're going to save rather than cranking up their levels of consumption. And these pools of savings are ones that can get recycled through these institutions who I haven't named yet uh, back into the decisions that we make, leading to higher levels of activity in our economy. Now, because this was something that happened last week, let me further explain what happens with uh, changes in interest rates, something that seems to be of great interest for some reason uh, to people, uh, and what happens when the MPC at the Bank of England decide to raise interest rates is that they're tilting that consumption profile. We're saying that households have made a choice that they're going to try and have as stable a level of consumption as they want, but if the monetary policy authorities or um, those institutions I haven't named decide to raise interest rates, that provides a further incentive to tilt the profile of consumption. So given your choice to smooth consumption, if interest rates go up, then you're going to slightly tilt your consumption profile, do a little bit less today, take some demand out of the economy, and do a little bit more tomorrow. It's going to encourage a little bit of savings. So we may see two factors explaining the overall levels of savings in the economy. The fraction of people in the economy who are earning high amounts of money today relative to their consumption path. If that's high, we're going to see a lot of savings. If it's low, we're going to see a relatively low level of savings. And it's going to be affected by some argument in the interest rate. If interest rates are higher than the market clearing level of interest rates, we might see low levels of consumption compared to a world in which interest rates are very low. 
So these are the two factors we tend to think determine the overall levels of saving in an economy. Now, there's another wrinkle I've got to add, and I hope these diagrams are not too complicated for a Thursday afternoon, um, but let me sort of point out what's going on. Here is our first line here, and we have our well-known path of consumption of income which is low, then high, we're on the rat race and the corporate ladder, and then low again when we buy our villa in Tuscany and we retire, or whatever the people's plans are, not my plans, I be working throughout probably. And we've got our consumption level here. Now, in that world, suddenly we think we're going to be richer because we're, we've trained in a, in a way to augment our human capital, or what we're doing suddenly has become more valuable than it was before. Uh, we're a graphic designer of some sort, and we've decided to work for a company called Apple, and suddenly it's become very wealthy. And if my permanent income has gone up in this manner, high expected future income, what I will try and do is immediately raise my consumption today. So you may well see more borrowing in an economy that expects to be richer in the future than it did before, and conversely less borrowing in an economy that suddenly expects to be poorer than it was before. Um, which is an interesting thought if you think that the impact of withdrawing from the European Union is going to make us poorer than we were before, then one would expect us to be borrowing less because of this expected poorer future. And one way to offset that impulse of borrowing less would have been to lower interest rates, which is what the Bank of England did last August. It's how policy and expectations interact to try and stabilise the economy. And there's a final wrinkle to this story. We're nearly there. It's the hardest bit of the lecture, for me as well, I should say. There's another wrinkle there as well. What if there are constraints to the amount you can borrow. I've suggested that if I'm poor today and rich tomorrow, I can go to this institution I haven't talked about, and they will lend me against some IOU that says, I'm going to be rich tomorrow, so please lend me some money. That's essentially what I'm, that's the story I've been telling you. But what if that institution, for regulatory reasons, or other forms of constraint, because it doesn't believe you, I don't know why an institution wouldn't believe you. I'll talk about myself rather than anyone in this room. But they may decide, yes, okay, you've come in dressed very uh, badly and you tell me you're going to be very rich in five years' time and as a consequence you want me to write you a cheque for £150,000. The institution might say, hmm, I'm not quite sure about that uh, because there's every chance you might just disappear with the money and how do they ensure that that money is going to come to you. So there may be what we tend to call liquidity constraints or borrowing constraints that any individual might have operating on them at any particular time. And these borrowing or liquidity constraints essentially will lead to deviations from this constant consumption path. It means that more of what's happening now will impact on your consumption path if you cannot borrow from your richer future. So you end up being constrained by your current level of income in terms of your consumption path, rather than, than being able to borrow from your richer future. And the more these constraints operate, number of observations, the closer will be your consumption to your current level of income, and the more volatile consumption will be over your lifespan, because you're unable to smooth it in a particular way. And that's also interesting, because in this world, less debt is being accumulated. Because these guys here are not accumulating this level of debt anymore. They're only accumulating this level of debt. These guys here are only accumulating this, levels of saving, this level of savings here rather than the larger box here and similarly here. So you get this interesting result that in this economy, less debt is being created, fewer pools of savings are being created, which some people would argue is better for the economy, but it's also clear these people are worse off because their consumption path has become more volatile. So be very careful of people who argue that reducing debt and re uh, is by itself necessarily better for the economy. Could very well be it's reflecting rational decisions. In fact, um, the level of debt, we would imagine, should be just large enough to allow people to have this buffer against temporary shocks. So the level of debt you have in an economy 
should increase in the size of the um, temporary shocks you might face and should increase in your risk aversion, the extent to which you don't want to see your consumption path jumping around. Both of these factors would tend to increase the level of debt that you'd want to hold. So, let's go back and think. So there's two aspects here. There's when I'm young or when I'm old, I need to borrow money. And when I'm middle-aged or when I'm earning well, I need to be saving money. Now, I need an institution to help me see through that. I think if I stood outside in the street in Chancery Lane and offered money to people, um, as I would be doing here, or indeed if I stood in the street asking money from people as they went by, both of those activities would probably lead to be, me to being arrested fairly quickly, I think. People think, who is this crazy person stopping people to ask for money? Or, and promising them to repay it in the same spot in 10 years' time. How likely it is you're going to find that person? Or equally here, offering people money to say, well, I'll give you a certain amount of money, but could you come back here in 10 years and pay me? Seems very unlikely. So um, what we have to do, of course, in, in that world is turn to banks. Turn to banks who are able to write a contract of form with us to take our deposits and return the money at the time that we need it, having engineered a return. And also, uh, for those of us who are borrowing, the contract is enforceable with the bank, in the sense that they will be able to extract the money back from us at some point in the future. Now, I'll come on to uh, risk premium in, in banks in a minute. But we know that banks are themselves faced with at least two types of problem. First is that the time horizon of deposits may be relatively short compared to the time horizons of the loans. Deposits coming into the bank may reflect monthly income streams. And yet the loans that they make may operate over 5 or 10 or 15 years. The two will add up, but the maturity structure of, two, of the two sets are really quite different. This leaves banks open to deposit runs. If some pe suddenly people want to all take their money out, be very hard for a bank to provide sufficient liquidity because a large fraction of their loans are going to be tied up for a number of years. This by itself is not necessarily a problem if an individual bank can borrow the liquidity from another bank. Let us suppose if I extract money from bank A and put it into bank B, that might leave bank A short of deposits. But if bank A can borrow that money again back from bank B, bank A will not have any trouble. So this is the interbank insurance mechanism, which used to work for many years very well indeed. Hasn't worked very well at all since the financial crisis, as some of you will no doubt know. Um, that's one kind of problem a bank will face. The other kind of problem a bank will face is if there's a generalised run. If all banks are not trusted, then they'll have to return to the central bank and ask for the central bank to provide liquidity under a lender of last resource function, a lender of last resort function. But banks themselves, that's the deposit side of banks, but banks themselves always also face a different type of problem in assessing any potential borrower. A potential borrower is going to present their best face towards the bank, is not necessarily going to tell them about their rather nasty gambling habit that's been uh, developed on the internet over the last five years. I use gambling as probably the safest vice to discuss here today. And if they develop such a habit, they may well themselves walk away with the loan. And it's very important that the bank tries to work out how to deal with that. And the standard method, as I'm sure you know, is to think of asking for collateral. And the collateral is typically more than the value of the loan. That ties the person to the bank, otherwise they're going to lose something that's more valuable to them than the loan, in that sense. Um, now, of course, unsecured lending is available, and we can talk about that as well. Uh, but unsecured lending itself seems to me closely related to the previous reputation of a borrower and perhaps also the fact whether they have some collateral, uh, collateralised lending uh, on their credit history. Without that, there may not be great access to unsecured lending. Um, so for these reasons, banks will tend to charge a premium, or any financial intermediary will tend to charge a premium over the costs of funding. For a bank, that's the interest rate they pay deposits and the interest rate they charge to people when they lend them out. So let's have a look at what that premium or spread typically looks like. This is a different type of premium than the one the banks may charge, but this is the premium that a, a, a prime investment 
company in the States that's AAA rated pays as opposed to something that's uh, at the end of prime uh, BAA spread since, uh, well, for the most of the 20th and the early part of this century. And all I want to say is that this spread, this difference in the interest rate paid for quality as opposed to nearly subprime um, quality, is variable and moves with the business cycle. The grey shaded lines here represent recessions. And what you observe, if you look carefully enough, I don't think I'm making it up, is that in recessions, the risk premium tends to rise. And in expansions, that's the lighter line, that's a world in which the economy is growing uh, reasonably well, uh, the risk premium starts to fall. And the question we should ask ourselves is this, that makes sense, recessions are riskier, expansions or booms are less risky, so it makes a lot of sense for the risk premium to fall. But actually, I wonder if it does. Um, it, it, in, an, in an expansion, when banks are lending more to more people, the quantum of lending increases, the marginal borrower is riskier as we increase the size of the balance sheet. So as the quantity of lending increases, the overall risk of the balance sheet also increases, but at the same time, financial intermediaries start typically to reduce the credit premium that they're offering. So they're not receiving appropriate compensation for the extra risk they're injecting into the system. And similarly, in a recession, you would argue that might be the time if our incomes have fallen. Remember that temporary shock I talked about earlier on? That's exactly the time I may need to borrow. I may be a perfectly safe individual in terms of my ability to repay. But if the banks start to increase their premium because they themselves have got some problems on their balance sheet, that could be something that damages overall welfare because premiums start to rise at exactly the time you need some liquidity. So this is a problem with banks that we want to think about in a minute. The next problem with banks, and uh, this is, uh, uh, I've turned this around just to keep you on your toes on a lunchtime, um, lunchtime uh, session, but here is the interest rate here. This is a model of the interbank market. This is banks lending to each other. Uh, here's the interest rate, and, and he can see is that this is the quantity of lending. So this is a supply curve. In the interbank market, we're, we're lending more funds as interest rates rise, and our demand for funds in, uh, itself is, is falling as interest rates rise. So this is a standard demand and supply curve in the way that I outlined, outlined a couple of minutes ago. But what we have here is a maximum that we're about, uh, willing to lend. We won't lend beyond this quantity here at that interest rate R because as a lender, I'm concerned about the person I'm lending to. And if they're prepared to pay an interest rate higher than I star, R star, I may say to myself, that person must be doing something really risky in order to give me such a high return. If they're doing something really risky, I don't want to lend to them. So this is a, an example of a world in which there may be a limit to what banks are willing to lend to individuals. And that could very well be, you're a perfectly sane individual. I'm sure that's the case when I look around the room. But you may be prepared to pay an interest rate high above our star because what you're doing is going to give such a high rate of return. But the, inter the intermediary cannot possibly know how hard you're going to bend your back and what state of nature will obtain in the future and whether you will really be able to manage your business to pay back that very high rate of return. So at some point we typically find they're not prepared to lend an increasing quantity of money above a high interest rate. And that's, again, a function of the private information or partial information that's always available to financial markets. It's not as full as you might think. So again, financial markets have to depend upon the collateral that is offered. That's the only way of reducing the risk premium that is going to be offered to people. And so what we tend to see in uh, lending markets is um, a common cycle. And we have to sort of decompose and think hard about what causes that common cycle. But what we have here, let me just explain, are, are some very vivid colours to wake people up um, and get you looking at them. And I could maybe get the graphs moving around, but maybe that's not appropriate. But what we have here is simply uh, credit to private non-financial corporations um, in terms of growth rates. Household credit is the blue line. And this um, perhaps mustard 
is, is, is asset prices. So a number of things emerge. They tend to move together. Household uh, borrowing, credit extended to households, seems to grow in line with asset prices. Credit extended to firms tends to grow in line with asset prices. And they all seem to have a very similar amplitude. They're above and below the line in unison. They're moving together. This is a reflection of the way our particular banking system works. Because of the informational rigidities I've just accept, uh, outlined, a large amount of bank activity deals with the asymmetric information problems by asking for collateral. Now, collateral is the value of collateral. There's two aspects to value. One is the quantity and one is the price. So the value of collateral in a world in which the uh, assets that we have are fixed are invariably affected by asset prices. So you have a world in which asset prices and lending go hand in hand. Now, it could very well be the case that there's some completely exogenous shock to asset prices that increases the value of collateral that both firms and households hold. They post that with the bank. The banks then offer more loans as a result. But it might also be that the very act of banks lending might affect asset prices. Two might well, very well be connected. And in fact, if they are connected, they could be amplifying each other in a positive feedback loop. Perish the thought. And so what we've seen, world of higher values of asset prices, and that's something we've talked about a number of times in these lectures, is an increase in debt in advanced economies. We can look at debt uh, held, issued by the government, issued by the previously mentioned PNFCs, private non-financial corporations, or households, and look at them relative to GDP. And I draw your attention, um, if I may, to the UK. This is just at the start of the financial crisis and five years on. Um, and you can see that, broadly speaking, the biggest change here has been government debt, which has gone from some 40% to some 80 or 90%. But the other uh, components of debt have stayed very much the same since the financial crisis. And if we add them all up, they're a, they're a pretty large multiple of GDP. Three times GDP is the level of debt out there that's been extended through financial intermediaries. Now, that might be a good thing. It might all be about all this stuff here, that's the household debt, might all be about households being able to smooth their consumption paths and not have a lot of variance year to year in their consumption. The debt taken on by PNFCs might also be very, it all might be about a positive future into which they've invested. They've borrowed the, these funds, invested in their companies, in plant and machinery and human capital, and it's developed uh, or augmented productivity in the economy. It's augmented productivity in the economy in such a way that real wages have increased and we're all feeling much better off. Does that sound like what's happened? This is real investment growth in the UK since the post-war period. I've used this diagram before in another context to talk about productivity, which I did in my previous lecture. But I just want to say the point, whatever debt the PNFCs have taken on, it doesn't seem to have led to a rapid increase in investment in the UK. If anything, it's um, deteriorated over time. This is real investment growth. You can see it's volatile. There's a business cycle element to this. But the levels, I'm just showing you the data as it is. I'm not playing with it. I'm not sort of doing anything fancy. Taking a view as to what's happening. And I want to say one thing here. Yes, there has been a slight increase in investment growth in the last 20 years as opposed to the previous 20 years. But we've got to remember that in the last 10 years, interest rates have been zero and real interest rates have been negative and we haven't had an investment boom. We would have thought that if it was essentially free to borrow money, we might have invested much more than we did. We haven't. And that's a, a critical criticism, it seems to me, of the outcomes in this economy, our economy. So let's now take all that and have a look at the picture of the household in, and the firms um, in the UK over this period and see where we are. Now, remember the story I started with was one in which I said households save and firms borrow. 
Households provide the pool of savings uh, in aggregate, when we aggregate across all the households, and that's used by firms to generate income. Um, and there are four sectoral balances we're looking at here. Think of the blue, the blue line is households, and the, the green, or, or whatever colour that is, avocado perhaps. Mashed avocado. What's that food? <laughs> Mashed avocado. Um, red is how much we borrow from the rest of the world, and purple, as it should be, is our regal public sector. Let's, let's hold the rest of the world and the public sector apart and just think about households and uh, this uh, mashed avocado of private companies here. And this period here from uh, 87 through to around the turn of the century, indeed, firms on balance were borrowing. And households on balance were saving. And so the story, despite the poor performance of investment, despite the points I've been making about our banking system, in the end seemed to have sectoral balances that, that made sense. Our households were saving in aggregate and our firms were borrowing. And yet, since the turn of this century, what you can see at first is that private companies, if anything, seem to have been net savers, not drawing down, and households have been rather uh, bipolar, sometimes below the line, sometimes above the line, but in aggregate, in balance. There seems to be some radical change of behavior. Now, again, I have to put a health warning on these numbers. They seem to get revised almost every year very heavily by our friends at the ONS. So let's not draw too much of a conclusion. But let me say that there does seem to have been some change in behaviors in the last 15 or, or so years. Um, now, there's a... Um, there's... Um, one possible explanation, uh, and I'm not going to go further with it because I'm going to look a little bit at that firm balance sheet before I go on. We wonder whether firms are becoming more like households and acting like middle-aged savers. Are they holding on to cash because they don't quite know what to do with it? They're not sure how to invest in an economy they don't fully understand, in which depreciation rates of capital are high, intangible assets are the things that matter and there's a lack of confidence or an increase in uncertainty about future prospects. That could be one story. And our households becoming more like firms. Are we seeing more and more households who are not operating with this model of worlds in which they have high and low income, that they're, they're living in a different manner and operating like firms themselves and moving gradually into different types of jobs over time? It's a very early thought. I'm not quite sure. But the difference itself is potentially profound between what we saw typically and what we now see. So, let me summarise this part of the lecture. We don't expect savers to allocate funds. We think borrowers have private information. That means loans typically have collateral attached to them. Um, the people making the lending and receiving the deposits will ask for a premium. This premium is cyclical but doesn't really, in my view, typically help the economy. It's cyclical in the wrong direction. And it may not eliminate bad lending because collateral values are themselves cyclical. If I rely on collateral values, collateral values may exacerbate this increase in risk over, this, over the business cycle. But what we do know is that financial intermediaries therefore have to make provision for loans. Now, previous chart that we've seen with investment and savings here is just simply modified to allow for this external finance premium that I've talked about. So I am here um, making the savings at this point here. I'm giving them to a bank and the bank is making uh, the loan to some chap here or chap S and, ex and charging this external finance premium. So we end up some point here, which is the state level of the economy. If the, the measured external finance premium falls as the economy expands. We go from here to here. We see the economy is expanding, the risk premium is falling. And here, if the economy is contracting, the risk premium is rising. So this is a very helpful diagram for thinking about why the risk premium moves in the way it does um, over the business cycle. And so what have policymakers done in response to the issues about borrowing and lending that I've raised. Well, they've introduced an idea of macro-prudential instruments, and what they really boil down to are constraints on the pool of savings 
that can be offered um, by, by banks. They're saying that if I'm really offering this pool of savings, we're going to restrict it by saying you have to meet further criteria, either on your ability to pay or um, the extent to which we will allow lending against certain multiples or the quantitative collateral that you might have to put down. All of these, in effect, reduce the overall pool of savings available to people at any given interest rate. That then means that the economy has not only an external finance premium, but another constraint on it as a result of macroprudential instruments. Now, the way I've drawn it, it looks terribly restrictive. But what you could do, of course, is that if you thought that the external finance premium was not reflecting the amount of risk in the economy, you could alleviate the macroprudential instruments and allow more lending to take place. Or, conversely, if you thought that there was too much lending taking place at a particular interest rate, you could tighten the macroprudential instruments. So, in principle, these are an instrument that could be used to lead to a better outcome for consumers over the business cycle. It wouldn't necessarily be pro-cyclical. So if you moved from this point here to this point here and you thought it was too risky, you could make the conditions here tighter. And equally, if you move from this point here to this point here and you thought that was too restrictive in the size of the external finance premium, you could move this particular curve out again to offset that. It's a very difficult thing to do. No one has calibrated or thought about it long enough and these instruments are very new, so we're not quite sure how they're going to work. But the idea in principle is to offset some of these amplification ideas that I've been talking about in this lecture. We shall see how they move with those. The other aspects are to uh, encourage banks to hold more capital. Capital is held in a bank and is essentially absorb absorbing losses that banks make. In a very... Uh, I'm sorry, I've just got these the wrong way around. Do forgive me. Um, banks are holding capital to absorb losses and in the very long run uh, banks have become more efficient in the use of capital rather than holding 30 or 40 percent of their balance sheets of capital it's fallen over time to well under 10 percent there's been a, a movement since the financial crisis to increase that again to allow banks some buffer against losses that they might make on loans and equally to offset the problem of um, liquidity so the idea that banks have enough cash in the till, as it were, to deal with demands, there have been moves to increase the uh, quantity of liquid assets they hold as well, and that's moving up beyond 5% and beyond. So these have been larger measures introduced in the banking system to help stabilise and offset some of the excess volatility that we've seen in the past. The increase in capital ratios, this is some work by the Bank of England, does suggest that it reduces... Um, these are the CDS premium credit default swaps. These are the costs of banks insuring themselves against losses fall in the quantity of capital that banks hold. So if banks hold more capital, the credit default swap or the risk premium attached to banks tend to fall, which tends to reduce the cost of their funding. It seems to be helpful to banks to portray themselves as less risky rather than more risky. We've seen reductions in bank leverage. This is the median bank had 50 times leverage, so £2 for every 100 that it lent out on its balance sheet, and that's fallen to 20 or so now, so nearly £5 for every £100 on its balance sheet. That's an improvement, but I think not enough to allow regulators to get a good night's sleep, in my view. It's uh, probably still not enough. Um, but banks in the UK remain large. And let's look at two outcomes of those banks as we move towards the end of the lecture. They're very large relative to GDP. Banking assets are five to six times as large as GDP. In the United States, they're about the same size as GDP. Other, it, they dwarf the size of other financial institutions, insurance funds, investment funds, or building societies. Our banks, about 60% of deposits are, are well explained by RBS, Barclays, HSBC and Lloyd's Banking Group um, and a large part of the change in the last decade is the reduction in the size of building societies. More and more of our uh, loans are operated through the banking system rather than building societies. At their, at their recent peak 
Um, assets to GDP of a building society is around 50%. They're now barely 20%. So even though they continue to lend about 80% of their book as mortgages, they're just not as big a player as they were in the past. It's mostly banks now that we have in place. So let's go back to this point about banks. And what we have is a, an average um, depiction of what a bank does. And in its balance sheet, its loans, about 18% of its balance sheet look like it's corporate loans, and an even larger fraction is household loans. And that's the thing I haven't talked about so much. I wanted to leave it a little bit towards the end, something for us to consider. Is it right that if we've got a model in which we think households should be saving and firms should be borrowing, that such a large fraction of what banks do is lend to households? Is that appropriate for an economy? Now, it might be. It might be a sensible thing to do. And in fact, many household loans may end up in the corporate sector because that might be how small and medium-sized enterprises get loans in the first place, is to take them as some form of household loan. But it tells you a story here of how a banking sector seems to work. It doesn't exclusively work as a mechanism for providing corporate loans. It's more so something for providing loans for households, and you'll know that most of that is driven towards property or real estate. So let's add all this up and draw a final picture of how well we're doing in mobilising savings. This is the, I'm going to present two snapshots, one of the household sector and one of the financial sector. Before I do that, I'll just take a sip of water. This is um, a table that I'm fond of using because I think it tells us a lot um, about the economy. Now, to remember, this is the aggregate household balance sheet. So it's all house, uh, households added together. It doesn't have anything in here about distributions. It doesn't tell you about the poor and the rich. So if I talk about the average, remember the average is very misleading, or the aggregate. It doesn't tell you about the distributional dynamics of any of this at all. Um, and so the first thing to draw your attention to is that if we add up household assets, tangible and financial, and take away their liabilities, the household sector as a whole has some £10 trillion pounds of assets. And that's about £380,000 uh, uh, th £380, per household on average, which is a considerable amount, which is not far off the average price of a house net of a mortgage. That's a similar kind of number. Um, about half the assets are in real estate, in housing, and about half in financial assets. Um, a relatively small fraction of those assets is held, are held in equities, considerably more in cash and deposits that are given to banks, that they could be lending out to people. The loans against the real estate largely are 1.6 trillion. So in aggregate, looks like um, we're operating at about a 30% loan-to-value ratio. Doesn't sound too bad in aggregate. These loans at 1.6 trillion are about 90% of GDP. So, like all these things, the frame of reference is key. If we say it's 90% of GDP, it might cause you to get very scared. If I tell you it's only about, it's, it's less than 30% of the assets against which the loans are backed, you may not be very scared at all. So, I, 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 there's an interesting point here about the aggregate. Clearly, it doesn't deal with the distribution. It doesn't tell you what fraction of households are at the margin in terms of what they might be able to pay given a change in interest rates and given some small change in their disposable income. And that could be very fragile and very sensitive. And it's those concerns of the distribution that make people very wary about raising interest rates very quickly at all. Now if we move on, and now let's talk about a household sector that looks reasonably well off. I want to mention non-financial corporations and Look at the size of the balance sheet there, it's about 4.2 trillion. Half of it is in non-financial assets, approximately. Real estate it holds is about 1.2. The quantity of machinery that it's holding is only half a trillion. So the quantity of, of, of real machinery or real investment that's carried out by this sector is relatively small relative to the uh, real estate that it holds. Um, intangible assets, intellectual property and others, is an even smaller fraction of this sector. The so-called cash mountain of this sector is around half a trillion. 
and the loans this sector is carrying in aggregate is just over one trillion. So less, I'll just go back a slide, less than the loans carried by the household sector, 1.6 trillion. Overall loans held by the um, financial sector are less than the loans held by the private sector. But of course the financial sector is able to issue equities and debt securities in a way that the household sector can't. So it finances itself much more through equities than it does through loans. Um, and yet, how much of those loans, 122, are through banks, would be the question we might want to ask ourselves. And I'll draw your attention, if I might, just to this line here. There's data from the Bank of England that says that of those loans of, of about a trillion, only 430 through the banking sector. 164 um, SMEs and 265 to large and other forms of, of external finance for UK businesses are through bonds, insurance companies and other things. I just want to say peer-to-peer -peer lending, which a lot of people are getting excited about, is minuscule, not terribly important at all at the moment. So banks, where firms are looking for loans, firms are only turning to banks to the tune of 430, which is a quarter of the amount that the household sector turns to loans, turns to banks for. So I leave you with some thoughts. We should ask ourselves as a society whether lending to households or property is crowding out lending to firms. Is it what we want? Do we want firms to be unable to borrow from banks? Is it something we should be addressing as a society? Does the financial cycle propagate or amplify the real economic cycle? Is it something we need to think harder about stabilising, particularly when financial prices can be buffeted by world events? Or is it something that we don't have to worry about? And have macroprudential instruments limited risk-taking by the financial sector in an appropriate manner? But my biggest concern is I think that the standard model that we have of borrowing and lending through banks doesn't capture the patterns of savings and investment in the UK very well at all. And uh, what we'll discover as we come to these lectures and come to the end, the sixth lecture in the middle of next year, is I think this is a critical thing for us to address if we want a better future for the economy. Thank you very much. <laughs>